Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash boy you to sleep. Tonight's readings comes from The Mayor of Casterbridge. The book was published in 1886 and written by English author Thomas Hardy. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thanks for some amazing reviews from iTunes listeners this week. Wichassery from Canada and Josie 111 from Australia. So glad the podcast is helping you guys out. Also thanks to Insta users Vintage Greeny, Bangtang Pringless, and JK Prestige Photography and Miss Alexandrov for reaching out and sharing your appreciation. Always awesome to hear from all you listeners and thank you for the comments. The podcast is completely free and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes for you. If you find the podcast helpful, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a review in your podcast app. It doesn't take long and really does help out. If you want, you can also say hello at boyetosleep.com where you can support the podcast. 
I'm also now on Twitter and Instagram at sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Cast a Bridge The Life and Death of a Man of Character by Thomas Hardy One evening of late summer, before the 19th century had reached one-third of its span, a young man and woman the latter carrying a child, were approaching the large village of Waden Priors in Upper Wessex on foot. They were plainly but not ill-clad, though the thick ore of dust which had accumulated on their shoes and garments from an obviously long journey lent a disadvantageous shabbiness to their appearance just now. The man was a fine figure, swarthy and stern in aspect, and he showed in profile a facial angle so slightly inclined as to be almost perpendicular. He wore a short jacket of brown corduroy, newer than the remainder of his suit, which was a fustian waistcoat with white horn buttons, breeches of the same, tanned leggings and a straw hat overlaid with black glazed canvas. At his back, he carried by a looped strap a rush basket, from which protruded at one end the crutch of a hay knife, a wimble for hay bonds, being also visible in the aperture. His measured, springless walk was the walk of the skilled countryman, as distinct from the desultory shamble of the general labourer, while in the turn and plant of each foot there was, further, a dogged and cynical indifference personal to himself, showing its presence even in the regularly interchanging fustian folds, now in the left leg, now in the right, as he placed along. What was really peculiar, however, in this couple's progress, and would have attracted the attention of any casual observer, otherwise disposed to overlook them, was the perfect silence they preserved. They walked side by side in such a way as to suggest a far-off-the-low, easy, confidential chat of people full of reciprocity. But on closer view, it could be discerned that the man was reading or pretending to read a ballad sheet which he kept before his eyes, with some difficulty by the hand that was passed through the basket strap. Whether this apparent cause were the real cause, or whether it were an assumed one to escape an intercourse that would have been irksome to him, Nobody but himself could have said precisely, but this taciturnity 
was unbroken, and the woman enjoyed no society, whatever from his presence. Virtually, she walked the highway alone, save for the child she bore. Sometimes the man's bent elbow almost touched her shoulder, for she kept as close to his side as was possible without actual contact. But she seemed to have no idea of taking his arm, nor he of offering it, and far from exhibiting surprise at his ignoring silence, she appeared to receive it as a natural thing. If any word at all were uttered by this little group, it was an occasional whisper of the woman to the child, a tiny girl in short clothes and blue boots of knitted yarn, and the murmured babble of the child in reply. The chief... Almost the only attraction of the young woman's face was its mobility. When she looked down sideways to the girl, she became pretty and even handsome, particularly that in the action her features caught slantwise the rays of the strongly coloured sun, which made transparencies of her eyelids and nostrils and set fire on her lips. When she plodded on in the shade of the hedge, silently thinking she had the hard, half-apathetic expression of one who deems anything possible at the hands of time and chance except, perhaps, fair play. The first phase was the work of nature, the second, probably of civilization. That the man and woman were husband and wife, and the parents of the girl in arms, there could be no little doubt. No other than such relationship would have accounted for the atmosphere of stale familiarity, which the trio carried along with them like a nimbus, as they moved down the road. The wife mostly kept her eyes fixed ahead, though with little interest, the scene for that matter being one that might have been matched at almost any spot in any county in England at this time of year. A road neither straight nor crooked, neither level nor hilly, bordered by hedges, trees and other vegetation, which had entered the blackened green stage of colour that the doomed leaves passed through on their way to dingy and yellow and red. The grassy margin of the bank and the nearest hedgerow boughs were powdered by the dust that had been stirred over them by hasty vehicles, the same dust as it lay on the road, deadening their footfalls like a carpet, and this with the aforesaid 
total absence of conversation allowed every extraneous sound to be heard. For a long time, there was none beyond the voice of a weak bird singing a trite old evening song that might doubtless have been heard on the hill at the same hour and with the self-same trills, quavers and braves had any sunset of that season for centuries untold. But as they approached the village, sundry distant shouts and rattles reached their ears from elevated spot in that direction as yet screened from view by foliage. When the outlying houses of Wade and Priors could just be described, the family group was met by a turner poa with his hoe on his shoulder and his dinner bag suspended from it. The reader promptly glanced up, any trade doing here, he asked, designating the village in his van by a wave of the broad sheet. And thinking the labourer did not understand him, he added, anything in the hay-trussling line. The turner power had already begun shaking his head. Why save the man? What wisdom's in him that I should come to Waden for a job of that sort this time of year? Then is there any house to let, a little, small new cottage just a-builded, or something like that, asked the other. The pessimist still maintained a negative. Pulling down is more the nader of Waden. There were five houses cleared away last year, and three this year, and the Volk nowhere to go. No, not so much as a thatched hurdle. That's the way of Waden Priors. The hay trusser, which he obviously was, nodded with some superciliousness. Looking towards the village, he continued, There is something going on here, however, is there not? Though what you hear now is little more than the clatter and scurry of getting away the money of children and fools, for the real business is done earlier than this. I've been working within sound all day, but I didn't go up, nor I. It was no business of mine. The trusser and his family proceeded on their way and soon entered the fairfield, which showed standing places and pens where many hundreds of horses and sheep had been waiting exhibited and cold in the forenoon but were now in great part taken away. At present, as their informant had observed, but little real business remained on hand, the chief being the sale by auction 
of a few inferior animals that could not otherwise be disposed of and had been obviously refused by the better class of traders who came and went early. Yet the crowd was denser now than during the morning hours. The frivolous contingent of visitors, including journeymen out for a holiday, a stray soldier or two come on furlough, village shopkeepers and the like, having flattery locked in, persons whose activities found a congenial field among the peep shows, toy stands, waxworks, inspired monsters, disinterested medical men who travelled for the public good, thimble riggers, knick-knack vendors and readers of fate. Neither of our pedestrians had much heart for these things, and they looked around for a refreshment tent among the many which dotted the down, two which stood nearest to them in the oversized haze of expiring sunlight, seemed almost equally inviting. One was formed of new milk-hued canvas and bore red flags on the summit. It announced good home-brewed beer, ale and cider. The other was less new. A little iron stove pipe came out of it at the back and in front appeared the placard. Good firmity sold here. The man mentally weighed the two inscriptions and inclined to the former tent. No, no, the other one, said the woman. I always like the firmity, and so does Elizabeth Jane, and so will you. It is nourishing after a long, hard day. I've never tasted it, said the man. However, he gave way to her representations, and they entered the firmity booth forthwith. A rather numerous company appeared within, seated at the long narrow tables that ran down the tent on each side. At the upper end stood a stove, containing a charcoal fire, over which hung a large three-legged crock, sufficiently polished round the rim to show that it was made of bell metal. A haggish creature of about fifty presided in a white apron, which as it threw an air of respectability over her as far as it extended, was made so wide as to reach nearly round her waist. She slowly stirred the contents of the pot. The dull scrape of her large spoon was audible throughout the tent, as she thus kept from burning the mixture of corn in the grain, flour, milk, raisins, currants and what not 
that composed the antiquated slop in which she dealt. Vessels holding the separate ingredients stood on a white-clothed table of boards and trestles close by. The young man and woman ordered a basin each of the mixture. Steaming hot and sat down to consume it at leisure. This was very well so far for firmity, as the woman had said was nourishing, and as a proper as food as could be obtained within the four seas, though to these not accustomed to it, the grains of wheat swollen as large as lemon pips, which floated on its surface, might have a deterrent effect at first. But there was more in the tent than met the cursory glance, and the man with the instinct of a perverse character scented it quickly. After a mincing attack on his bowl, he watched the hag's proceedings from the corner of his eye and saw the game that she played. He winked to her and passed his basin in reply to her nod. Then she took a bottle from under the table, slyly measured out a quantity of its contents, and tipped the same into the man's firmity. The liquor poured in was rum. The man was a slyly sent back money in payment. He found the concoction thus strongly laced, much more to his satisfaction than had it been in its natural state. His wife had observed the proceeding with much uneasiness, but he persuaded her to have hers laced also, and she agreed to a milder allowance after some misgiving. The man finished his basin and called for another. The rum being signalled for in yet stronger proportion, the effect of it was soon apparent in his manner, and his wife but too sadly perceived that in strenuously steering off the rocks of the licensed liquor tent, she had only got into the maelstrom depths here amongst the smugglers. The child began to prattle impatiently, and the wife more than once said to her husband, Michael, how about our lodging? You know we may have trouble in getting in if we don't go soon. But he was deaf to those bird-like chirpings, he talked loud to the company. The child's black eyes, after slow, round, ruminating gazes at the candles, when they were lit, fell together. Then they opened, then shut again, and she slept. At the end of the first basin, the man had risen to serenity. At the second... He was jovial, at the third, argumentative, at the fourth, the quality signified by the shape of his face, 
the occasional clench of his mouth, and the fiery spark of his dark eye, began to tell in his conduct he was overbearing, even brilliantly quarrelsome. The conversation took a high turn, as it often does on such occasions. The ruin of good men by bad wives, and more particularly, the frustration of many a promising youth's high aims and hopes, and the extinction of his energies by an early imprudent marriage, was the theme. I did for myself that way thoroughly, said the trusser, with a contemplative bitterness that was well-nigh resentful. I married at eighteen, like the fool that I was, and this is the consequence of it. He pointed at himself and family with a wave of the hand intended to bring out the penuriousness of the exhibition. The young woman, his wife, who seemed accustomed to such remarks, acted as if she did not hear him, and continued her intermittent private words of tender trifles to the sleeping and waking child, who was just big enough to be placed for a moment on the bench beside her. When she wished to ease her arms, the man continued... I haven't more than fifteen shillings in the world, and yet I am good experienced hand in my line. I'd challenge England to beat me in the fodder business, and if I were a free man again, I'd be worth a thousand pounds before I'd be done with it. But a fellow never knows these little things till all chance of acting upon them is past. The auctioneer selling the old horses in the field outside could be heard saying, Now this is the last lot. Now who will take the last lot for a song? Shall I say forty shillings? "'Tis a very promising brood mare, a trifle over five years old, "'and nothing the matter with the hoss at all, "'except that she's a little holler in the back, "'had her left eye knocked out by the kick of another, "'her own sister coming along the road.' For my part, I don't see why men who have got wives and don't want them shouldn't get rid of them as these gypsy fellows do their old horses, said the man in the tent. Why shouldn't they put them up and sell them by auction to men who are in need of such articles? Hey, why be God I'll sell mine with any minute if anybody would buy her? There's them that would do that, some of the guests replied, looking at the woman who was by no means ill-favoured. True, said a smoking gentleman, whose coat had fine polish around the collar 
elbows, seams and shoulder blades, that long continued friction with grimy surfaces will produce, and which is usually more desired on furniture than on clothes. From his appearance, he had possibly been in former time groom or coachman to some neighbouring county family. I've had my breedings in as good circles, I may say, as any man, he added, and I know true cultivation, or nobody do, and I can declare she's got it in the bone mind, yea. I say as much as any female in the fair, though it may want a little bringing out. Then, crossing his legs, he resumed his pipe, with a nicely adjusted gaze at a point in the air. The fuddled young husband stared for a few seconds out of this unexpected praise of his wife, half in doubt of the wisdom of his own attitude towards the possessor of such qualities, but he speedily lapsed into his former conviction and said harshly, Well then, now is your chance. I am open to an offer for this gem of creation. She turned to her husband and murmured, Michael, You have talked this nonsense in public places before. A joke is a joke, but you may make it once too often, mind you. I know I've said it before. I meant it. All I want is a buyer. At the moment, a swallow, one among the last of the season which had by chance found its way through an opening in the upper part of the tent, flew to and from quick curves above their heads, causing all eyes to follow it absently. In watching the bird till it made its escape, the assembled company neglected to respond to the workman's offer, and the subject was dropped. But a quarter of an hour later, the man, who had gone on lacing his firmity more and more heavily, though he was either so strong-minded, or such an intrepid toper, that he still appeared fairly sober, recurred to the old strain, as in a musical fantasy, the instrument fetches up the original theme, Here I am, wanting to know about this offer of mine. The woman is no good to me. Who'll have her? The company had by this time decidedly degenerated, and the renewed inquiry was received with a laugh of appreciation. The woman whispered. She was imploring and anxious. Come, come, it is getting dark, and this nonsense won't do. If you don't come along, I shall go without you. Come. She waited and waited, yet he did not move. 
In ten minutes, the man broke in upon the desultory conversation of the fermity drinkers with. I asked this question and nobody answered me. Will any Jack Rag or Tom Straw among ye buy my goods? The woman's manner changed and her face assumed the grim shape and colour of which mention has been made. Mike, she said, this is getting serious. Will anybody buy her? said the man. I wish somebody would, she said firmly. Her present owner is not at all to her liking. Nor you to mine, said he. So we are agreed about the gentleman you hear. It's an agreement to part. She shall take the girl if she wants to and go her ways. I'll take my tools and go my ways. It is simple as scripture history. Now then, stand up, Susan, and show yourself. Don't, my chill, whispered a buxom, stay-laced dealer in voluminous petticoats, who sat near the woman. Your good man don't know what he's saying. The woman, however, did stand up. Now who's auctioneer, cried the hay-trusser. I be, promptly answered a short man, with a nose resembling a copper knob, a damp voice and eyes like buttonholes. Who'll make an offer for this lady? The woman looked on the ground as if she had maintained her position by a supreme effort of will. Five shillings, said someone, at which there was a laugh. No insult, said the husband, who'll say a guinea. Nobody answered, and the female dealer in stay laces interposed. Behave yourself, moral, good man, for heaven's love. Ah, what a cruelty is the poor soul married to. Bed and board is dear at some figures. Set it higher, auctioneer, said the trusser. Two guineas, said the auctioneer, and no one replied. If they don't take her for that in ten seconds, they'll have to give more, said the husband. Very well. Now, auctioneer, add another. Three guineas. Going for three guineas, said the roomy man. No bid, said the husband. Good Lord, why she's cost me fifty times the money, if a penny. Go on. Four guineas, cried the auctioneer. I'll tell you what. I won't sell her for less than five, said the husband, bringing down his fist so the basins danced. I'll sell her for five guineas to any man that will pay me the money and treat her well and he shall have her forever, and never hear of me. But she shan't go for less. Now then, five guineas, and she's yours. Susan, do you agree? She bowed her head with absolute indifference. 
Five guineas, said the auctioneer, or she'll be withdrawn. Does anybody give it? The last time, yes or no? Yes, said a loud voice from the doorway. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy now. And if you're not quite drowsy yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. I'll be bringing you a new episode very soon. Until then, and good night.